Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. On today's episode of our daily NYFF 60 edition, director James Gray and stars Jeremy Strong, Anne Hathaway, Banks Rapita, and Jalen Webb discuss Armageddon Time, a main slate selection of this year's festival with NYFF artistic director Dennis Lim. The film was presented as a special NYFF 60th anniversary celebration. The most personal film yet from James Gray is also one of his greatest, an exquisitely detailed and deeply emotional etching of a time and place. Queens, 1980. Set against the backdrop of a country on the cusp of ominous socio-political change, Armageddon Time follows Paul Graff, a sixth grader who dreams of becoming an artist. At the same time that Paul builds a friendship with classmate Johnny, Jalen Webb, who's mercilessly targeted by their racist teacher, he finds himself increasingly at odds with his parents, Jeremy Strong and Anne Hathaway, for whom financial success and assimilation are key to the family's Jewish-American identity. Paul feels on firmest ground with his kind grandfather, a marvelous Anthony Hopkins, whose life experiences have granted him a weathered compassion. Rejecting easy nostalgia for a more difficult, painful form of recall, Gray's film, shot with intimate naturalism by Darius Kanji, is a perceptive and humane coming-of-age story that does what only cinema can do, elevating the smallest moments into the greatest drama. Armageddon Time is a Focus Features release. To learn more and get tickets for this year's NYFF, taking place through October 16th in all five boroughs of NYC, visit filmlink.org. Enjoy this conversation about Armageddon Time. Uh, thank you for joining us for the press conference of Armageddon Time, um, our 60th anniversary film. Uh, and welcome to our guests. I'm going to introduce uh, furthest from me uh, is Jalen Webb, who plays Johnny. <clears throat> Uh, Banks Rapetta, please, Paul. Anne Hathaway, who plays Esther. Um, and of course, writer and director James Gray. Hello. I think Jeremy at some point is joining us, isn't he? He will be here in a few minutes, apparently. So looking little. at that empty chair, it's kind of weird. Um, I will start um, with a few questions for our guests before opening it up to you. Uh, I'll start with you, James. Um, could you tell us why you, at this point, your eighth feature, decide to make your most autobiographical film? I had made uh, two films back to back, uh, one of which was in two continents and th four countries and Amazonia. And uh, it physically was, I'm very happy I made the film, but it was physically brutal. And, you know, I'm, as I've often said, genetically designed to be an accountant in Minsk. So I wasn't prepared to be in Amazonia and I would, you know, dress up as I looked like Moses as a beekeeper. It was a very strange look. And that went on for two years or whatever it was. And then I had another movie which uh, was in space and very technically difficult and had other issues. And so I was exhausted and I, I went off to... Uh, Paris to do Marriage of Figaro there, which I'd never done an opera before, which I wound up loving the experience, but I was in a kind of gilded cage in this residential neighborhood in Paris, and my wife and children had not joined me yet. And I would go home uh, at night after working in the theater, and it was like, you know, I don't know if you remember the movie Papillon with Steve McQueen, where he's in the solitary confinement and his brain starts to wander. And so I started remembering my childhood and I started taking notes. Is that Jeremy? That is Jeremy. Sorry, sorry. Thank so you sorry. for joining us. <laughs> how are you, bud? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm getting along. Um, Hi, Dennis. So uh, anyway, to make a long story longer and to be ever more interesting, uh, 
I started to look inward. I'd also, t I, I'm, I'd also told my children a ton of bedtime stories. You know, I love doing that. And they, no, they don't like it so much anymore because they're old and they think I'm a nerd. But at, when they were, remember five years ago, they really loved it and they loved childhood stories. And then it's weird because, you know, you tell these narratives and you realize that some of them are not so uh, mm. upbeat or charming. And then at one point, uh, my wife and I were going to the beach and uh, we were going on the 59th Street Bridge. And my kids said, well, where'd you grow up, Dad? We want to see where you grew up. And, you know, <laughs> take a detour on Queens Boulevard and you find yourself in uh, Archie Bunker's neighborhood. And uh, they kind of looked at the house and went, that's it? I don't know quite what they expected, but sort of all of this went into the soup. And uh, I just was anxious to tell the story after a while. There have been autobiographical elements in your films, as I think especially your first several films. Um, but this film is a very direct confrontation with your childhood and your younger self. Yeah. Can you talk about why you wanted to do it so, I guess, frontally? I guess it's because it represented, uh, in some ways, a creatively an epic challenge mm -hmm. to try and do it as honestly as I could. Uh, not to make a movie where it's like little boy as uh, self-aggrandizing, you know, terrific. I wanted to do something where I mm. look kind of like a jerk at times, which is what I was. And um, I found it difficult. And of course, if you tell me something's difficult, I want to try and do it because I'm a crazy person. So I, basically, I just I wanted to dive into it and get rid of, as I've said to these guys all the time, to get rid of the wall, anything that gets between the subject and me. It's to try and be as vulnerable and as open and as clear as I can to allow the ambiguities to emerge. You know, I, I, I just wanted to, it was like an, it was like the ultimate challenge for me. Get rid of all the noise and just be you and all of your, you know, grotesque truth. I don't know. I, I know I'm not. It's, it's such a it's, you're asking me a very good question, but it's like an elusive thing because mm -hmm. you're it's like why you pursue something. Sometimes you don't even know on a conscious level. I'm, maybe I'll answer that question better eight years from now where mm -hmm. I have some distance. I just felt I needed to do it. At the same time, there is a distance, I mean, of 40 years. Uh, yeah. th this is, you know, I think you would have made a different film. You made your first film at 25. You know, had you made. I actually shot. I was 23. 23. Yeah. Which is crazy. So you would have made a very different film about your childhood then or 10 years ago, right? So there is a distance of 40 years that kind of, I think, you feel in this film of, of, of you looking back. Well, that's true, of course. But, I mean, that's always the case, isn't it? You're a different person at 53 than you are at 23. I don't ever think of that kind. I don't, I don't sit in my bedroom and think, you know, I'm different. And how am I going to be different? And how is this distance going to create? I don't think about it in those terms. I just think, what is it that I can reveal about myself that I'm not comfortable with? Mm -hmm. And try and put that in a movie. That's really the, 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 the MO, you know. Since we have your uh, great cast here, maybe you can talk a little bit about putting them together. Maybe we can start with um, Anne and, and Jeremy uh, and this, this idea of casting your parents, essentially. I didn't want them doing a, a rich little... <laughs> I, did, I, I was just, I didn't want an impression right. of my parents, an impersonation. I, I, and it's weird because they wound up getting incredibly close and accurate to who my parents were. But I tried to 
put as much as I thought was relevant into the script and then allow them to create. And I just went with actors whom I love and actors who were passionate about doing it. And I didn't, it, it's weird, I didn't write it obviously for actors. I wrote it with my own parents in mind, but I was so, I, it came together in a very unusual way also because COVID, I mean, I'd written the thing in 2019, um, before January 6th and before the, mm. the election and, and before George Floyd and all this stuff. And it's weird. You write the thing and all of a sudden the world changes and the script doesn't. And I just decided to put my head down and try and get the best actors I could. And even that was in flux because it was like, you know, I don't remember you were not available. Then you were available. You know, it's all that weird stuff that you have to go through. It just basically becomes get the best actors who want to do it. And these people were just silly enough to want to do it. I don't know. They can answer more than yeah. I can why they wanted to do it. I don't know. I, I reached out to them and they, they'd have to answer. Can I just j jump in? I mean, if, a few things. You know, one is that what James was just talking about, I had read something in an interview with him f from a few years ago that he had a, a great wish to break down the wall between himself and his work. And I think creatively, that's something that really appeals to me and felt very exciting. One of the first things we did, I got on, I was in Denmark when, when this came together and I got on a plane and I went with James and his family to the Panorama uh, at the Queens Museum. And what's so incredible about being here and part of this festival is, you know, seeing that panorama and seeing, you know, James talks about finding the macrocosm and the microcosm and, and this story sort of zooming in on this particular house in this particular neighborhood in Flushing and the way that it, the way that it is also a story about the soul of our country in so many ways. Um, but the challenge I think for us was sort of rendering, not in a totally mimetic way, but finding both the essence of these people. And then, you know, it was important to me to, to, um, to not just interpret what he had written. I, I wanted to find out who this man was and, and bring that uh, alive as dimensionally as possible, down to the voice and, and behavior. And uh, for me, if I approached it like, oh, I'm playing James's mother, I've already removed myself from the character. And I've closed off an opportunity for he and I to find a truth together. So I didn't really think that I was playing James's mother. I, I had to treat her like I would treat any character. The fact that she was James's mother meant that I was very sensitive in how we discussed how the scenes would be played. I can be a very, very frank and forthright person. And I have a lot of very strong opinions about my characters. But I, I, I did adopt a gentler approach. Um on this one uh, and that you did? I did can you imagine um, <laughs> and um, yeah and and as a result and the thing that drew me to the story well first of all I mean when your agent calls you and says James Gray has a script and there's a, an age-appropriate part for you in it you're like okay I know I have to read it before I say yes but like you also know what I'm gonna say um, and I was so drawn into the contradictions of her. And then, you know, I, 
as I got more and more into the project, I realized the contradictions of her, the contradictions of the home, the contradictions of our country, what you said about the soul of our country. And I thought, I don't know how many times I've had an opportunity to tell a story centered around a family that contains so much love and so much rage and the way intimate spaces can go from goofy to violent very quickly. And, um, I had a feeling that would be familiar, more familiar than one would suppose based on the way we talk about these things or don't talk about these things. Uh, maybe we can bring in um, Rapetta and uh, Jalen. Uh, James, you want to talk about casting them first, maybe? Well, I watched 600 or so uh, for each character of uh, 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 you know, 600 or so actors and it's a weird thing during COVID. You know, I, I like in person a lot. I think the human connection matters a whole lot. And so when I'm looking at a computer screen and it's like the image is this big, you know, so I, I had to fight my way through that first, but I watched a whole ton of kids and, and um, then I narrowed it down to maybe 10 who I spoke to quite frequently and worked with and they were all superb. But these guys, there was an extra level of listening. They could listen and I was throwing curveballs at them and improvising and they were right with me. I don't know how much they remember, but it was so great to work with them on that level. And then when they showed up, I mean, I loved them both. They were like the greatest kids in the world. So it was like a fantastic experience. I was very moved on a daily basis going to work. I felt very lucky because it was like, uh, you know, you don't really get a chance to do this, particularly in American cinema. It's like a huge gift. So uh, they were just so, they went beyond my expectations and it became beautiful to work. Mm -hmm. Banks and Jalen, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience? I think it's funny you say that. I distinctly remember when I went on the call back with you. I remember you being very bothered by your internet and the fact that you were looking at a screen. And yeah, I can relate on that. But um <laughs> Yeah. What What did I? I don't remember that at all. I mean, it sounds like me, but, but I, um, I, I remember uh, my mom and I did the audition, and then we got a call back from you, and we did the Zoom, and we played around with the scene a lot, and yeah, you threw curveballs, and it was fun to work with you, and um, I I distinctly remember that you're very bothered by your internet and the fact that you're looking at a screen. <laughs> Irascible. But everybody knows, everybody's bothered by it. the internet is unstable. And it's like, <laughs> put my fist through the screen, you know. Yeah, I, I also remember during the callback of, I believe it was the first scene, you wanted me to grab a deck of cards and just shuffle through it. So we didn't have one just right next to us. So there was my mom just running around the house trying to find one because we were freaking out. And uh, throughout this, uh, I believe it was the second scene, James wanted me to get a paper and a pen and write one through 50 or 100, I believe, while saying my lines. And I was like, wow, this is really different. And it was exciting because, you know, I've, I've never done anything like this before. So... When you did that, I got a little scared because I was like, okay, I might be doing something wrong if James wants me to do all this stuff. <laughs> but then, you know, at the end of the callback, James said, you'll be hearing from me soon. And I just thought that he was being nice. I thought that, you know, that's something that he told to all the other kids who read for Johnny. But then the next day after school, my parents are freaking out because they told me that I got the part. 
The the cards thing was because I wanted you to play the stickers thing. That's what it was. It wasn't just just random stuff. You know, I actually caught on to that when I read the script, and I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so stupid. No, no, it wasn't. I don't remember the numbers thing. That's particularly inane. I mean, even for me, I don't know. I don't remember what my motive was there at all. But I don't know. I guess I don't get out enough. I don't know. I don't. One one of the great things that James gave to us, and I think Annie and I both felt incredibly liberated by this, but one of the first things he told us was, whatever you do, don't nail it, which is an, which is an amazing act of trust from a filmmaker who's very much in, in command and, and the, the authority on the subject matter more than in most cases. So, so it could have been an instance where, um, where he didn't allow us that freedom and, and ownership, but that idea of not nailing it is sort of, um, you know, in, 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 in dis- contradistinction to, to a lot of the work that is made that is sort of result-oriented and it allows for authenticity to, to be born in the moment. James, you talked about, you know, just removing this wall and, and trying to get it as 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 true as possible. Um, I'm wondering how much research really went into this. Do, do you have a really good memory? Did you feel like you had to talk to a lot of people who were around you at the time? Um, and it's beyond beyond your own, you know, your own story. There's also a lot of period detail, of um, culturally specific um, things in the film. Uh, I had, uh, I have a great memory, which is very weird and at times extremely harmful. Um, uh, it becomes a bit of a joke on the set that people can ask me who directed any 1980s movie ever, uh, and if it was released, and the names get very amusing, and this becomes a kind of ha-ha thing, but uh, it's verging, and uh, I, I may be on a kind of uh, Asperger thing, I don't know, but uh, that's what Tony Hopkins said. Tony Hopkins said, hey, I think, oh, you've got Asperger's on, man, you've got Asperger's on. I said, really? Uh, is that a compliment? I don't know, how does that work? Uh, but uh, I do remember a lot, but uh, my brother was uh, absolutely instrumental as well. I remember about the, for example, the Marianne Trump speech. I wrote down what I had remembered about it as best that I could. And I remembered uh, thinking, even at age 12, that it was absolute horseshit. I mean, I, I remember saying, listening to her, I was thinking like, what do you mean you, you worked all so hard? You're worth like $500 million. What are you talking about? And my brother, I, so I called him up. I said, Ed, I remember, you remember Marion Trust? Well, of course I did. I said, well, write it down as best you could remember it. And so we can compare. And they were like exactly the same. So it made me think it's pretty close to what she said. But it was like he would, I would call him up. I'd say, well, what, were the, what was the plate design, Ed? He'd say, oh, they were white plates with like a little green floral pattern. Oh, yes, that's right. And we discussed the chandelier and the dining room, all those details. About period, you know, I have a very good memory of, uh, that stuff, although not as good as I thought I did. You know, you think, okay, I'm going to get an establishing shot of the Guggenheim. The Guggenheim has not changed at all. It's the Guggenheim, right? So I get a shot. Next thing I know, $30,000 worth of visual effects later, um, I looked at a painting by uh, an artist named Richard Estes, who's a photorealist painter. He made a painting of the Guggenheim summer of 1980. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the Richard Estes work, and the Guggenheim's a different color, and it's walk, don't walk, instead of the hand thing. And and the building next to it's totally different, and they added the building behind it. You know what I'm saying? So uh, we had to start consulting photos and f- newsreel footage as much as we could. And then, of course, this, things like the subway train, you know, where the, the, the city of New York, you know, they gave us the, the train, and that was nice. And then the 
1974 era train. And then we had a run in Bleecker Street for, I think, two subway stops. And they said, well, you can't put any graffiti on it. And I'm like, that's the whole thing. I mean, that was the, the trains. I don't know how many of you are New Yorkers here, but they were, uh, for, for that long, I mean, I'm a thousand years old. It was covered with graffiti. You couldn't even read the maps. So I said, well, I said to the production, I said, well, what are you going to do to solve? He goes, well, we're going to write the graffiti on, you know, clear thing. And we're going to put it up. So then he starts doing that on the day. And then they're like, no, no, you cannot put the graffiti on the train. Do not do that, sir. And I found that obnoxious because it was like a rewriting of history. You know, they didn't want to promote graffiti. I'm like, are you kidding me? So guess what? You know what? We, we defeated that because, you know, there's something called visual effects. So all that graffiti is added in visual effects. Uh, and they did a pretty good job. I, I had all these graffiti artist friends of mine doing all this graffiti that they were putting on the train. All It's very quite funny, actually. But I mean, of course, you research and also your memory. Do any of the actors want to jump in just about, you know, I guess period specific um, details and 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 the the process of just inhabiting that that time and place. I mean, ha Happy Massey, your production designer, really did an incredible job. This sort of level of detail and verisimilitude, down to the plastic coverings and the wallpaper and and objects. But you know, w w one of the earlier conversations I had with James, he read me a few lines at the end of uh, the first volume of In Search of Lost Time, and. I think Pinter... You're about to get us totally ridiculed. You do understand that. You say, inv invocation of Proust. You know, it's like, oh my if, God. What are we doing if we're not risking ridicule? No, I doing? love it. I love it. Uh, it wouldn't be my first time, Jim. But in a way, it's it's like the Entenmann's Donut. And that's what he's trying to do, I think. He's trying to recover. You know, it's a ghost story. He's sort of recovering these places lost in lost in time and lost in sort of the mist of memory. Um, so it, it did, you know, for the actor, it, I think for us, it did feel like we were walking into that it was transportive to walk into the environment. I, I think one of the things that, picking up on what you were saying about the whole concept of not nailing it, was uh, to not over-communicate visually at every turn the period. Uh, and that was something that everybody worked on, but I worked very hard with uh, Madeline Weeks, our costume designer, on, because there's a way to do the 80s, where like you show up and everybody giggles, and um, but that's not necessarily playing the truth. And so the idea was, how do we not create a cost, like costume after costume after costume? How do we actually create... Uh, a woman and give the audience visual information about exactly who she is. And that's, you know, something you, you have to be mindful of when you don't have that much, uh, as much screen time that you have to communicate as much as you can, as clearly as you can about your character without um, commenting on it, if, if, if you know what I mean. We, we also single-handedly revived the business prospects of Sears and Roebuck for this movie. It was kind of fantastic. Just so you know, prospects are very grim, but we yeah. did revive them, yes. Okay, just one more from me. Um, I just want to kind of follow up on both Anne um, and, and Jeremy have touched on this, the idea that this film is not just about, you know, coming of age, um, but about a sort of inflection point in this country's history. Um, and it's interesting, I think, that your most personal film is arguably also your most political film. Well, I never saw it as a coming of age at all, weirdly, because I always saw, I always saw it as a, the kid is the window into the world and that's it. So I don't was always even lessons learned, catharsis, all this bullshit. I don't, um, the idea behind it was that you can be oppressed and oppressor at the same time and that you can, the world history is a series of layers that are uh, 
impossible to peel away and get to the core. There's no one truth about it. And what I have found is that there is uh, the, one of the difficult aspects of it is for me writing it was that it's like it's easy to blame. It's easy to point a finger at. It's much harder to witness a system in which everybody in some ways contributes to an ongoing catastrophe. And um, it's, it's, I know it's, it's also, I, I found the challenge that everything now, especially the way that people communicate a lot in very short sentences, everything is sort of reducible. I was trying to go in the opposite direction and say, no, it's, it's more complicated than that. That my, my parents, for example, who had had all of the awareness of uh, anti-Semitic uh, behavior could themselves say terribly racist things or be, uh, and I'm not, again, it's not about blaming my parents or anything, but it's trying to reveal something that I think is endemic. It's almost like marbled throughout the whole system. And so um, I also think that class is a very uh, underrated, has a very underrated impact. You know, uh, people today, my children, for example, are wonderfully educated in many ways, but I noticed that they're, uh, Education about American capitalism seems incredibly limited. They are cheerleaders for it, essentially. You know, uh, when does the new iPhone come out? So, uh, I, but I think that capitalism is integral to the, the harm in the system. And, you know, someone said to me, they said, oh, Tony Hopkins, he plays such a, a wonderful saintly part. And I don't think he does. I think the scene where he says, I told Japan to do that. I did. I think is horrible. Because it was my grandfather's way of saying, I'm, we should give up on the system. And I understand the reasons they did it, but it's, it's our contribution to, in, to the, an unequal society. And everybody contributes. That was what I was trying to do with the film. All right, let's take some questions. Um, why don't we start in the front here then? Um, there's a lot of uh, physical scenes with the children. And I was hoping you could talk about um, going about choreographing those physical scenes because everybody has a part in that. Um, so just maybe a little discussion on how you approach that as actors, as a director. Banks, you wanna? I think we just did it as any other scene. Um, I'm not sure how to answer this question. Maybe James can help me out. You, you, you answered it correctly. I mean, basically what you do is you find I mean, I, well, that was, I mean, you're talking maybe about a, like the scene in the bathroom with the father and the son. Uh, let me come back to that. Um, I think there's a lot of freedom, just like how we were able to act. And um, that's what made it nice. Is, and that's what made the chemistry real is because me and Jalen got to have some experiences together that we haven't experienced before. And um, that's what made it real. Well, what I was going to say that maybe speaks uh, to your to your question is, I think we're all wrestling with this in a new way, which is how to tell violent stories without perpetuating harm. And uh, I think the way that we approached it was we talked about it. We, we talked about it. We I knew exactly what I wanted to do in the scene. I spoke to Banks about it. I got Banks's permission to to do it. I spoke to Banks's mother about it. I asked Banks's mother permission to do it. Um, there was conversation throughout. There were check-ins. And I don't mean to speak for you, and please uh, uh, add to this whatever you would like. Banks was very, very upfront about that he wanted to be treated like an actor, 
and he wanted us to bring it and he was excited. And, um, and I think that there's this instinct perhaps to think of certain people, children, various people as, as vulnerable and maybe perhaps like they need to be coddled. But I, I know from my own experience as a young actor, you can also be very serious about your craft from a young age. And it's important not to coddle, but to create an environment that is so safe that you can risk that you, that you can risk period. I heard Kate Blanchett say art is not always polite. Um, she said that recently about tar. And so I think that that was sort of the line that we were walking. How do we make everything so safe that we can risk violence? I think that's very, very on point because as Banks, I was so excited to have these new experiences and work with these actors that I've never worked with before. And as Paul, I was working with these great actors that helped me drop into Paul and get into the scene and the character. Yeah, I, I mean, I think to just build onto it, and he's saying, <clears throat> um, I think you have to be, you have to create a controlled environment so that you can enter into chaos and, and in a sense, danger. Uh, I think you tacitly agree to, to ground rules. I know we had a safe word. The safe word was anything that even proximately approaches discomfort, not just like tapping out. So as long as we had that in place, and, and I felt that my scene partner was ready to go wherever the scene went, uh, that, that, that was it. And then, and then you just sort of see what happens. Yeah, I would also like to add, uh, just with the scenes where I was physical, as Jeremy said, it was a very controlled environment, you know, just as Jalen, I was excited to get arrested, but uh, you know, it, it's, it was something new. But just whenever we weren't filming, you know, the cast, the crew, the officers, they just made sure that I was okay. You know, they would ask like, oh, did this hurt? And I would tell them no. And we even had a meeting before we even shot the scene. So it was just very, it was very, it was a controlled environment, which was able to be performed in. Can I, can I just add, so we were all very conscious of, of, you know, wanting to respect your work as Paul, but also that Banks is Banks. And so before we shot the bathtub scene, I, I came over and, you know, we had a conversation and when it was done, and, and by the way, the, the crew was silent because it was so impressive what you did and evocative and, and difficult to watch, but we were all completely blown away because an actor of any age doing that would have taken our breath away, but th that you're still so young in your career, it was really, really masterful. And um, I sort of ran in because I was the last one to speak to Banks beforehand, just like kind of momming out. And so I just ran in to check him out and I'll never forget, he went from crying to standing up going, that was the one. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, also just an incredibly hard day with with James. Uh, hard in the sense that it was difficult for us. Uh, it was very quiet on set. And you're aware as an actor that you're being called on that day to be essentially an instrument to reenact uh, arguably traumatic, very difficult things. So the container within which these things took place was one of, I think, great love and care. So perhaps to sum up everything saying we did it responsibly, respect, respectfully, and like a family. I can agree with you, Annie. Thank you very much. That, that meant a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, another one in the front row. 
Um, I have a follow-up uh, question on the comment you made about the grandfather we just saw on screen. He might not be a saint, but he's very much Jiminy Cricket, uh, the conscience uh, hovering, and the performance is tremendous. So I'm, I was wondering if there was anything new about your grandfather that you found out by watching Anthony Hopkins. Jiminy Cricket, my God. Um He's very, I, oh, look, I hate to use the word accurate. It doesn't have any real meaning, nor do we care about it. Accuracy is overrated. But I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, you, I, I don't blame my parents because the, the amount of daily struggle, it's, it's hard for people who aren't a thousand years old to remember the mid to late 1970s, which was, uh, at least at least in my memory in 1977 in particular my parents uh were financially devastated and i remember that uh there was the, the blackout and all these other things the, the bronx is burning all of that time period which in some ways i refer to more than as we call it the 80s and um i remember my parents had a lot of uh, such stress about making ends meet and didn't really spend any time with my brother and me. Now, I don't blame them because it felt existential. I remember that very clearly. I remember my mother talking, we, Erwin, we have to get the food stamps. We have to get, and that was like a big deal in the house that we were going to use food stamps. And then I remember that my grandfather was the person who said, you are wanted. I love you. You are wanted. And you really only need one person in your life to tell you that growing up. And you'll be okay. doesn't mean you, it's okay to have crappy parents or whatever. What I'm saying is, as long as there is one person close to you who makes you feel that way, you can survive. And he was that person for me. And I told that to Tony, and Tony was sort of like, any other words, any other words? I said, well, you're giving the, the, the boy a benediction. Oh, benediction, very good, very good, very good. And then he went off and did his thing, you know. I only take the take. You only have to give him two or three words, and you know, for this to, to change the emotional temperature a tiny bit. He's so good. And uh, the only thing I can tell you about what I learned is that thing, which is the importance that he had in my life. That he told me, "You're going to be okay, kid. It's going to be okay." Because I felt such a level of panic and angst. And um, I'm telling you this not. I, I don't. I'm not asking for, uh, by the way, pity. I'm just explaining the, the state of things as I perceived them in in, in that moment. And I was, uh, as I've said to you, I, I mean, I was uh, many times also a jerk, which I wanted to put in the film as well. Dumpling suckers. I mean, it's you know, my mother had made this whole meal, and I was going to be a shithead and order dumplings. So um, it wasn't all like he would put me back in my place. He said, "You'd be a mensch." He'd say that to me. "You'd be a mensch." Okay. And then for two days I'd behave and then I'd become a jerk again, you know, the cycle. Anyway, I don't know if I answered the question, but all right, let's go to the very back there. Uh um to Ed. That's the great Ed Lockman yeah. back there. <laughs> How are you, Ed? You're a great artist, Edward. But you did a great job with Darius. But could you say something about the visual world you created that isn't necessarily the eighties? which I loved about the film as you created your own world. Could you say something about your interpretation of what the imagery was to create that world for you? Yes, and hello. hello. Uh, 
Uh, I am. <laughs> I, we, Darius and I tried to watch no movies. Uh, to, I haven't we, seen that one. <laughs> I'm so probably, sorry. Probably I'm better, so sorry. <laughs> we, we tried to watch uh, nothing at all. And the, uh, the camera operator, I remember one point, who was terrific camera operator, great camera operator, Julien de la Cruz. He said, he said, I've never seen Foreigner Blows. And I remember Darius was like, no, <laughs> you've never seen Foreigner Blow. No, come on. And I said, no, no, Darius, it's okay. He'll watch it after we're done. I, we don't want him. We're going to rip it off anyway, unconsciously. Let's not rip it off. So I took them to the museum. We went to the Met. We just looked and different works of art and started to talk about common things. And I, I kept saying to them over and over again, and I wound up writing the words on the camera on a piece of cardboard. I said, this is what you need to know visually. Warmth, humor, love, loss. Those were the four words. And I said, I want you to think of it like a ghost story where the actors are almost never in their key light. So uh, he, Darius took a lot of uh, inspiration from a very famous painting by, by Vermeer at the Met that he saw, which is a woman in the kitchen, sort of like this, but she's not in, not in the light. She's sort of a bit withdrawn. And I think he took that from me telling him about the energy crisis of 79 and how my father was always like, if you're not in the room, turn off the light, turn off the light. And he would always turn off. So I always felt like my house was really dark and lit from another space. So uh, like, for example, when, uh, Banks comes home and he sees Annie on the couch, that the scene is lit from another room. There's no, she's not in her key light, so to speak. Or um, even the, the dining room scene, you know, with the, the dumpling sucks, all that, you know, I think it was two stops underexposed. The overhead light, it's, it's very dim. My father was always putting things on new, I have a new dimmer I put in. He would put, the, put it on the dimmer. And so it was all that kind of thing led to, weirdly, the visual strategy for the film. It was the idea was to make it almost like a ghost story. And I know that, you know, I, I made fun of you, I'm sorry to say, about the Proust thing, but um, it was a cheap laugh I was trying to get. But the, the whole point was that it is true. When I went back to the house, when I brought my kids back that moment, there were, the fact that there was so little evidence that my grandfather was alive and my grandmother, my whole family, my mother, all those people who are now gone, the, the dinners that seemed so vital and so important and now it's like, they're like dancing around like fireflies in my memory, and that's about it. And for me, that had such a, a melancholic power. And I started showing Darius Polaroids because I said to him that, you know, that famous, and I've quoted from it many times, so brilliant, that Sontag thing on photography where she talks about how the minute the photograph is taken, it's instantly in the realm of the irretrievable past. And so it takes on a melancholy. And I think that's why people, I see people all the time always taking pictures or people always have photo albums. You never look at them because it's like you want to keep the moment, preserve it forever. But to look at it unconsciously, you realize you ain't going to get it back. And so what I tried to communicate with Darius, and we didn't wind up speaking much during the, the shooting except about lenses really, uh, but with the light and the look was this kind of uh, this idea that it was a ghost story. We looked at some Saul Leiter color photography from the early 50s. We did look at late 70s photography, but dye transfer kind of thing. It was frustrating for us. I wanted to shoot on film. It's the first time I didn't um, for a variety of reasons. But not least is that the stocks no longer respond. 
the way that they used to. It's not there anymore. It's almost like if you said to a painter, yeah, that thing, that lamp black you, you like, I'm going to take away the tube. You can't use it anymore. And for us, and I know you know this, it's very frustrating. We, I would love them to go back and manufacture old stocks, but they can't do it anymore. So all of this went into the soup. I don't know if this answers your question, but all of this was part of the conception. Oh, very good. I actually, he rented my lenses, used the Baltars. The Baltars? Various, I had rehoused a set of Baltars from 70 years ago. I know, And yeah. those lenses you were using. So thank you. Thank you. All right, we have to wrap it up. Um, but I want to thank all of you for joining us today. And thank you for the film.